0: Hello, and welcome to Plain Sight presented by Invisible. This podcast feed shares Socratic dialogue with invisible partners and allies, where we discuss and challenge our values and principles and have honest discussions about the world. We hope that in doing so, we can see things outside of our Plain Sight with twenty twenty vision. Let's go.
1: Hi,
0: Francis. Hi, Haley. Here we go again.
1: Here we go again. Francis, one of the things I loved about our last conversation is that you kicked us off with etymology. Can we start off with etymology this time?
0: Sure. Which word do you want to etymologize?
1: Let's do trust and corporation, because you got us to corporation from trust.
0: Well, first we have to welcome the third person we're recording this podcast with, this very silent person called the audience. Hello, audience. Hi. Hi. So the person that we were speaking to in both the last episodes is the cynical New Yorker. And of course, we're talking to New Yorkers, including people who've never been to New York and who don't live in New York, just the archetype of somebody who's very cynical, who cares about things like money and power and pleasure, and who doesn't necessarily care about anything altruistic or romantic or impractical or theoretical. Somebody who's very focused on practical takeaways. We know that people are very careful with their time and they don't listen to podcasts that are airy, fairy, pie in the sky, waste of their time. Haley, before I do the etymology of the word trust and the word corporation, can you please do your best to summarize why on earth someone should listen to this third episode on this podcast series and what this whole series is about?
1: My friend Francis, who also happens to be my CEO, is someone who gives money, pleasure, and power their due respect and can't help but want them, but also doesn't find them as good or interesting as the true good and the beautiful. And so I think his lines of inquiry weave what we think we should want with what we actually want together in really unique ways.
0: Here I am with my friend Haley, my CEO. The joke here is that at our company, everyone is the CEO until told otherwise, the CEO of their area. We are co-CEOs. I think the thesis, if you will, for this whole podcast is this single sentence. Trust is the foundation of all wealth. And following through on great conversations is the foundation of all trust. I'm going to say it one more time. Trust is the foundation of all wealth. And following through on great conversations is the foundation of all trust. So wealth, wealth is something that cynical New Yorkers want. So that's the anchor. That's the hook that is going to get the fish. Trust is something also that everybody understands. You don't have to be some sort of pie in the sky romantic to understand trust. Everyone who has ever paid for security in any format, whether it's having a security camera or calling the police, or even paying taxes, because taxes represent a form of security, everyone understands that we don't have complete trust in everyone all the time. And actually, even a dollar bill represents a form of trust. We are willing to receive payment in the form of dollars because we assume that other people are going to trust that currency. But we know it's not the only currency. After all, we're New Yorkers, so we understand that currencies are fungible. You can trade one currency for another. So trust is definitely a currency. If you have extremely high trust with someone, you're willing to extend them credit. Isn't that interesting? There's like a financial concept tied into trust. And then we're connecting with this idea of following through on great conversations. So following through also implies action, not just words. So words and actions. If the words are disconnected from the actions, then it breaks trust. And we're saying that following through on great conversations is the foundation of trust. But We're also implying that there's this activity that two people can do together that will somehow result in wealth creation. What we're getting at is actually something that sounds a little bit airy-fairy. That sentence, come on, let's be real. It's a sort of hippie thing you'd hear in a yoga class. Trust is the foundation of all wealth and following through on great conversations is the foundation of all trust. Cue All the New Yorkers roll their eyes. Totally great yoga class material. But We're actually talking about something that's at the very heart of business. It's the very heart of all business activity is the handshake. The handshake precedes the contract. The coffee meeting precedes the deal. So just to all the cynical New Yorkers out there that are the third person recording this podcast with Haley and I co-CEOing this podcast, listening along. I just want to make sure that we ground this in practicality as a foundation. All right. So now shall we do the etymology and then dive in? Let's do the etymology of trust first. So I'm just Googling trust etymology. Trust etymology. The first thing I see here is Old Norse. As soon as you see Old Norse, you're up there in Denmark, Norway, Sweden, Scandinavia. You're hanging out with Thor and Loki and Odin. You're in a completely different world. Old Norse. Trauster, meaning strong. Old Norse, traust. Old Norse, tresta, trust into Middle English, because the Vikings were conquering and the Vikings did a bunch of invasions into England. And so all those words got into English. or Trost tresta. I don't know if I'm saying that right. I don't know how to speak any of those languages. But sounds
1: convincing.
0: Okay, good. I'm glad I can be convincing. So now I go to the other really helpful website for etymologies, which is Wiktionary, which is Wikipedia's free dictionary. And I'm scrolling down. And to be clear, I'm improvising. I have not prepared for this podcast. So I have no idea what I'm going to find here. Let's see what we find. From Middle English trust associated with protection. From Old Norse traust confidence. Confidence. Help protection. Itself from Proto-Germanic trausta. From Middle High German getrusta. Host. Like hosting. Ultimately, from Proto-Indo-European deru. Be firm, hard, Solid akin to Danish trost, comfort, solace, Frisian trast, comfort, solace, German trost, consolation, Gothic trousty, alliance, pact, a doublet of tryst. Trist, I'm gonna click there, waiting place, appointed station. So it's like a place to make safe, a holding place, a shelter a security, abode, a fortress. Whoa, interesting. So we could go deeper. The thing about etymologies is I just gave you like a less than one minute one, but these things are incredible threads. You can pull these threads and pull on them and pull on them. You're going to find more and more, but there are such an incredible word cloud. such an incredible constellation around this. Suddenly we're talking about in that handshake, everyone knows the myth of the handshake comes from medieval knights, warriors who are like, You're a martial artist. I'm a martial artist. I could hurt you. You could hurt me. I could be holding a sword. You could be holding a sword. But right now, if we're handshaking, I'm greeting you in a handshake by some code of chivalry, just like a white flag in a battle. If you wear the white flag, you're surrendering. So don't shoot people who are wearing the white flag or don't shoot the medics. That's something that even two countries that are at war, everyone can agree don't shoot the medics. Even in World War II, Hitler's Germany and Churchill's England could agree don't bomb Oxford. And don't bomb all the heritage sites in Germany. No matter who wins this war, there's certain things we shouldn't do. Even in war, there's a code between warriors. Even in war, if I shake your hand and you shake your hand, we're not going to touch our swords. We're having a meeting. We're going to get coffee. (laughs) But then it goes into all these things of, well, actually, if we shake hands long enough and we have a long history of shaking hands, a long history of meeting, I would never use my sword against you. In fact, I would use my sword to protect you. I would be your friend, your ally. I would be your fortress. I would be one of the people that you can count on. I would be in your security inventory. In a moment of need, I'm in your bank account and you can draw down on me. There's so much there in that word trust. What did you get from that?
1: I kind of got my word cloud separated into three little trees where one is what you can count on. So that might be firmness, strength. There was one that I think used the word solidity. Then there's when you can count on it. And I thought the comfort and consolation pieces were really interesting. And then last would be where. The idea that place is somehow a part of this. You're not only inside a relationship that's safe, but somehow you're in a place that's safe and that the relationship and the location start to have attributes that mirror each other, which I never thought about before, but it doesn't surprise me when you think about it, that there's a lot of common linguistics across places that you store your money versus relationships that you trust. A you
0: place you store your story money like a bank. So the idea of a friendship is that we have a bank account with each other. We're banking each other. I've got a Haley bank account. You got a Francis bank account. Wow. There's so much. So now while hearing you talk, I had ideas. By the way, that's part of the magic of conversation. In a previous episode, we talked about this. This is just the coolest thing, I think, which is that the reason why we bother to have conversations with our friends is that you don't actually know what your friend is going to say in advance, even if you know them very well. Haley and I have known each other since 2018. I think we did the etymology of our friendship during one of the previous episodes. We haven't known each other forever, but it's not like we're brand new friends. We know each other pretty well. And when I talk to Haley, I don't know what she's going to say. So it's a little bit dangerous to talk to her, which is why these podcasts are fun because we have no idea where they're going to go. And I know it's vice versa. That's interesting that while Haley is talking, ideas are coming to me, which is a mystical thing. And now the cynical New Yorkers are struggling because suddenly we're going out of this place that people are comfortable with. Where do ideas come from? Why is it that conversations are such fertile ground for new ideas? Why is it that? you're so much more likely to have a breakthrough, a creative breakthrough, a new insight, a new idea. Everyone knows this feeling. It's totally universal. Ooh, 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 pause, pause, pause. Stop talking, stop talking. I got a good idea. I got a good idea. While you were talking, you gave me an idea. What is that? I don't know. What do you think it is?
1: I do have a hypothesis. I think that people interact with reality, and that reality is similar. So when you look at a room, you see the same Thing I see when I look in the room. But in our minds, the schemas we use to organize information to make meaning have different features, like a different layout in a room. And so you might have a chair next to a couch, two different ideas that you juxtapose with each other that I never would have thought to juxtapose. And then I look at your room and I go, oh, whoa, I've never thought about what happens if I rearrange my mental furniture a little bit. And I put Socrates next to who is the person we talked about last time that the battlefield story, the mothers. Oh, Napoleon. I never thought about what would happen if in my imagination, I just sat Napoleon and Socrates down next to each other. But by engaging with Francis's imagination, I've now done that. And it made me think of something different.
0: Also, there's something very interesting about the fact that these words start with Old Norse. Have you been to Scandinavia, Haley? I haven't. Oh, my gosh. I can't wait for you to go. I went for my first time to Sweden this last early August. And so it's now we're recording this at the end of September, almost two months ago. And I have never felt so safe in my life here in New York. I don't feel unsafe, but this is like a completely different level of a deep feeling of peace where the thought kept occurring to me that I felt like I could drop a suitcase full of hundred dollar bills in the middle of the street and it would get turned into a police station. And it would find its way back to me very quickly. And I've never been in such a high trust society. And it's interesting that this word trust traces itself from that region. And I wonder why that is.
1: Yeah, I wonder why that is too. What did you notice? You're so sensitive. What felt different about the way you were moving around the world, other than you can leave a suitcase out somewhere?
0: I mean, one of the things that felt different is this sense that almost the whole country is like an extended family. I would say it's a much smaller country than the United States. I don't know. I'm going to get this wrong. But off the top of my head, something like 10 million, which is like the city of New York. is the whole country. They do have a form of patriotism there, very different than American patriotism. But there is this sense of you trust your family or your close friends. When they come over to your house, you're like, make yourself at home, help yourself to whatever's in the fridge. But you don't necessarily do that for a stranger. If you do that for a stranger, it's an extension of hospitality, You're giving them a chance to build trust with you. You're welcoming them in. We talked about this on our grand tour of the world a few years ago, this idea of the great chain of being, which is a medieval idea. But imagine the solar system, there's the sun in the center, and then there's the inner planets that are really, really close and orbit really quickly. And then there's the outer planets like Pluto, which is way out there. But the idea of a society is somehow, if you're in a high trust society, even the person that's farthest away from the center of your little universe, if your nuclear family and nuclear center of your little world is there, and this is the furthest person, you don't have any mutual friends. Well, in a high trust society, everyone's a mutual friend, even if you're not friends yet. There aren't really strangers. It's interesting that, and you know that I have really struggled with socialism as an idea and a historical philosophical lineage of thought. There's a reason why socialism works better in Sweden than it does other places, because there's such a foundation of trust. It solves a lot of interesting things in economics. This is where I can get the attention of the cynical New Yorkers back. In a prisoner's dilemma game theory, where everyone is incentivized to cheat and to steal, you get all kinds of bad behaviors. But if everyone knows everyone else, then anything you do to damage your reputation with anyone will eventually spread and everyone will know about it. And that sounds creepy. Maybe it sounds like a surveillance state. But if you think about it... It's
1: like the blockchain on the neighborhood block.
0: Exactly. It's like the blockchain of trust. So if you go on a first date that you were set up by one of your friends and you were being introduced to one of their close friends, you're extra on your best behavior <laughs> than if you go on a first date with some random person from a dating app that you have no mutual friends with. And that's what trust is like. You assume that there's a web, almost like I'm going to use an Indian word here, but like a dharmic web, like splashing something in the water. One drop of ink in a glass of water, the ink is everywhere suddenly. So you're just extra aware of the fact that, whoa, you never deceive yourself that, oh, I'm able to get away with it. I can misbehave here and there's going to be no consequences. No, 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 no. Everyone's counting on you to be worthy of trust. And it's interesting how it creates these virtuous cycles. Virtuous cycles in economics. Wait a second. Virtue? Wait, now the cynical New Yorker's struggling again. What is virtue? What does trust have to do with virtue? I don't know. What do you think, Haley?
1: I think a couple of things. The first thing I was thinking about was we talked about the idea of trust and the etymology of trust. We talked about it having a place. And I thought about how my experience in societies like that is the feeling that people have a place and they know their place. And I don't mean that in there's a cynical way you can say that, know your place. What are you doing outside of your place? But there's also order and solidity and sense of reciprocity and relationship that comes from feeling like you have a sense of who you are, but most importantly, who you are in relationship to other people. And there's something about, I don't know if this is anything like France or some other European countries, but a lot of times they have a totally different relationship between economy and society, not just on the socialism idea, but even how they track people really early on into those places. They don't have an overproduction of school teachers or an underproduction of school teachers. There's a system designed to make sure that everybody has a role in holding a society together. I think that's a real challenge in American society. And I think part of a puberty that we're in right now, on the one hand, I'm very much a believer in allowing an individual to chart their own path. But I also think all people want to contribute to something bigger than themselves, which is really entering into a trust relationship with society. I think one of the great challenges of our time is how long it takes people to figure out their role in that relationship. It can take a really long time until you feel like you know how you contribute to the whole. And that's part of what trust has been about historically. It's part of what work has been about historically, but is not how we understand it today. Just the idea of tracking people to a specific place And what that means for the way a society feels is what comes to mind for me. Exactly.
0: Now I think we're ready to do the etymology of the word corporation. But before I do, Haley was dancing around a number of polarities, a number of dualities, a number of yin-yangs. So there's the yin-yang of individual versus collective, individual versus society, classic yin-yang. There's the yin-yang of norms versus eccentricity. Am I empowered to be... My weird eccentric self? To what extent do I need to follow norms and conventions and traditional understandings? I'm just going to call out those two. And then I'll just put it in the form of three words that we can follow up on. And they're all C words. I can give you three C words, or I can give you five C words. So here's the three. What exactly is the difference, oh, cynical New Yorkers in the audience? What exactly is the difference between a cult, a culture, and a civilization? And I'll actually extend that trinity to a pentagon what exactly is the difference between a cult a culture a company a country and a civilization
1: francis what about city i don't think we need six
0: great six you want to add a seventh? we have to think of a seventh. you can definitely add a city
1: city's needed i like those questions
0: come on we need seven let's go to Three, the five or seven. okay here we go i got it what exactly is the difference between a cult a culture a city a country a church a company, and a civilization. All C words. Interesting that they're C words. Words are weird, so I don't view it as accidental. Let's go ahead and do the etymology of corporation. Corporation, from Latin, corporare, combine in one body, through late Latin, corporatio, into English, through Middle English, corporation. That's if we just Google it now, if we look on Wiktionary, from corporatio, assumption of a body, corporare, to form into a body. And then noun, corporation, plural corporations, a body corporate created by law or under authority of law, having a continuous existence, independent of the existences of its members and powers and liabilities distinct from those of its members.
1: I'm just going to call it a meta life.
0: We could do a deeper one, but yes, that's the idea. The idea is that a corporation is a composite being. It's like a meta person. Historically, if you look, and this is moving from Wiktionary to Wikipedia, if you look at the history of corporations, they were founded by the Dutch and the English in the 16th century to allow more risk taking to occur because they were doing all these extremely risky voyages and they had to pool together a bunch of money and nobody could afford it. No one person could afford it. 10 people or a hundred people or a thousand people could afford it. And they realized that if they pool together their money and they divide the profits into shares, then they could do much bigger things. They could sail around the world. They could build much bigger buildings that were ever built before. They could invest much, much more in building advanced tools than ever can be done before. It's sort of which came first, the chicken or the egg? Which came first, the corporation or the industrial revolution? Which came first, the corporation or the scientific revolution? It is just right there in this very fertile period in history.
1: I have a question. How do you think they thought of that? Do you ever like just zoom back into Imagine History and picture yourself having a conversation, walking to the town square, going like, hey, man, have you seen the way they can divide up currency these days? It's great. I used to only have a giant gold bar, but today they may be a sliver, so I don't have to carry as much to the market. Can you imagine what we could do with all these slivers? How do you think that went?
0: The first person who didn't have to bring a sack of gold to the market instead could just bring paper. Can you imagine? bringing paper, must have been a revolution. And it was. And I do actually think, Haley, that there's no such thing as invention. There's only discovery. That actually goes all the way back to Socrates.
1: Yeah, we about that too last time. You told me the parable of... The
0: Meno paradox.
1: You were also telling me about Pythagoras, baby Pythagoras.
0: The Meno paradox was that Socrates believed there's no such thing as learning. There's only remembering. And it's the same thing. There's no such thing as invention. There's only discovering. And I actually think that a lot of these huge ideas. They might come historically through an individual, through an Einstein, say, or through an Edison. But there's always this feeling of awe and wonder and almost like, whoa, about these things and what's happening.
1: But I'm the corporation and how you think that they might have discovered that in your language. Do you know any of the actual history?
0: Oh, yeah. It would go into tea houses in London and Amsterdam and We don't have time to go into some of that, but the joint stock companies and the Dutch East India Company, et cetera. But without getting too lost in the details of the history, I just want to point to an economist, an Austrian economist named Hayek, who basically believed in emergent complexity, that these things are born at certain moments in time. Sir Francis Bacon, who came up with the original first draft version of the modern scientific method. There was something not just about the fact that the muses spoke to him and he wrote it down and he happened to be the chancellor of the exchequer. He's like the secretary of the treasury of the United Kingdom. It was the moment in time. It was a fertile moment in history. There's something always very important about the moment in which you're in. It is Tuesday, September 27th of the year 2022, and I'm in New York and you're somewhere else in the country. <laughs> Where are you right now?
1: Portland, hence all the plaid.
0: Okay, you're in Portland.
1: Yeah, I'll wear other when I'm in LA.
0: So- there's always something very significant about where we are. It's not just about our fertility, our ability to have an idea, but it's also the ability of the environment around us to hold the idea that we have. Because if I give my friends and my company and my team an idea and it's just rejected, it's like a seed that dies. The seed never grows. So there's something about that moment in time in the 16th century where there's a lot of incentives, a lot of historical forces that we're moving towards the necessity to organize into much bigger groups. And there's an interesting thing about when you're organizing groups of strangers, because the oldest ways of doing business in the old cultures of the world were who do you do business with? Well, you do business with your brother, you do business with your father, you do business with your family, you get everyone together and it's like a family business. But a modern corporation, you're working with a ton of strangers. You and I work in a company with 1,100 people the vast majority of which we've never met. And probably a year from now, it's going to be over 2,000 people. Even if we wanted to meet everyone, we couldn't. It's just growing too fast. So the question is, how are we able to maintain trust in this ever-expanding body of people? Now, I asked that question, and let's pause for a minute and all think about it. Let's ask it to the third member of our podcast, the cynical New Yorkers out there all around the world who've never been to New York. (laughs) How is it? that larger and larger companies are formed and everyone is able to trust each other. What do you think, Haley?
1: My thoughts went several places. I really want there to be a third. There were two main ones.
0: I'll supply the third.
1: Great. One place I went was actually quite cynical, which was away from trust and to verification. We talk about trust, but verified. I think a lot of times people substitute verification for trust, or perhaps that's something that we do. And then that made me wonder what the implications of that might be. The other one that won't surprise you, incentives of various kinds. So usually when people talk about incentives, they talk about it where they mean material or wealth-based incentives. But I think when you look at startup culture, for example, the desire to achieve something distinct or to do something significant. There are all sorts of things from the big PhD that I think amount to a set of shared motivations or incentives that align us together, whether we want to or not. Also, there's something in there around survival. How do you make it more efficient to continue propagating the species?
0: And a corporation is a form of a species that needs to propagate. It's like a little meme that needs to grow. I'm going to reflect back to your two things and I'm just going to put them into one word. You said verification, and that made me think accountability. So, number one, accountability. Accountability creates trust, incentives create trust. And you were hinting at a third, which I'll supply, which is relationships. So, think of it this way. And I think the cynical New Yorkers tend to overweight the financial component, overweight the incentives and the accountability, and underweight this third thing because it's too amorphous and qualitative, but it's super real. Going back to the old handshake idea. You and I are going to do business together. What do we do? We get coffee. There's a gut feeling I have about you and a gut feeling you have about me. And if that gut feeling is super negative, even if the whole deal makes a ton of financial sense, it's much less likely that we end up doing it. And also because we know it's much less likely it's actually going to work. The more risk is involved, the more important we're going to wait that gut feeling. If the deal involves investing a huge amount of our money or a huge amount of our time, that gut thing is going to really make us pause. And we're going to want to really spend a lot more time before we get comfortable in our gut, before we go invest that kind of time and money. What's really going on there in this thing that we call the gut? In other words, you can almost think of it like two forks. There's financial fork, which is, does the deal make sense on paper? Do the legal docs make sense? Do we like the price? Do we like the terms? Does the scope of work make sense? What are the metrics that we're going to hold ourselves accountable to? There's all of that stuff, which is much easier to study in business school. But then there's this other thing, which is this human relationship thing. Do I like you? Do you like me? Do I trust you? Do you trust me? Do we have similar ideas? Do we have similar values? Do we have a shared myth, a shared story about the world, a shared story about ourselves? We're past, present, and future. Do we have a shared vision, a desirable, possible future we both are oriented towards? That's actually, I think, where all these C words come in. Because when you have 1,100 people in one company, I cannot possibly have conversations with all 1,100 people. So that gives me a few choices. One is I can dogmatize everyone, I can basically tell everyone I'm going to create a document or a set of documents or a set of beliefs, which you must agree with or leave. Or pretend to agree with them. In other words, if you want to get paid to work here, you have to agree with me and you have to agree with us. We are the body. We are the corpus. We are the corporation of people that believe X. And so if you don't believe X, leave. We say these phrases without even thinking about them. When people talk about scaling a culture, what the heck do they mean? What does it mean to scale a culture? What is it that forms organically in a very small group of, say, a startup team of 12 people? that somehow could scale to a company of 1,100 people. What is that thing that is scaling? And that's where the mystery is. I don't know what the answer is. What do you think?
1: I'm going to reverse a little. I wanted to just offer a content shout out. A PhD named Heidi Halverson has done some really interesting work on this. And it forks out into two buckets that together constitute trust in a way that I think parallels what you were just talking about. Where she breaks one out It's a little different but it's similar she breaks one out into competence so basically do you have the capability to act on your word and then the other is warmth which is do i get the feeling that this person cares about who i am and what i'm up to and my story so there's always this simultaneous calculation of can this person actually contribute to the whole and then do they want me to be part of the whole do they think that is true of me as well and so we're kind of always running That calculation and it's something that leads to trust. The warmth piece really gets to that relational dimension you were mentioning in particular. In a world where you can't scale the relational dimension or where you can't scale warmth over a city or a civilization or a culture, what then does it mean to scale culture? I have no idea, but the place I would start asking questions would be at the idea of a shared story. That's how religions have scaled, they don't always have the same. Culture, But you can locate yourself in a shared narrative, a shared identity in a lot of similar ways around the world. Religion has been really good at that, at scaling culture by scaling a story.
0: I'm so glad you brought up religion. You and I live in the United States.
1: Sometimes in New York, highly cynical, non-religious.
0: But generally speaking, in the West, there is the separation of church and state, which is actually much more than just the separation of church and state. It's a bunch of other things too that are implied it's the separation of church and company it's the separation of personal and professional who i am in my personal life in my personal life i might be like going to bernie man and wearing some medieval knight outfit but in my professional life i'm expected to wear business casual clothing and in my personal life i might read and write and speak in verse and poetry But in my professional life, I'm expected to write in prose, in plain English, like a pro, like a professional. There is the sense that norms become enforced and we don't necessarily want everyone to agree on everything and have that be imposed. So we end up having what we call secular norms. And this historically comes from the wars of religion, which is right around the same time, immediately before the first corporations in the previous century. So The Treaty of Westphalia, 1648, came after 100 years of Protestants and Catholics in Germany specifically, fighting and killing each other. And something like half of all adult German military-aged men died. And this was so traumatic that everyone agreed this needs to stop. It's pointless. Nothing's being accomplished. Me imposing my beliefs on you with violence is not working. So we should just go back to trading and being friends and realize that we're all Germans and I'm going to let you be Catholic and I'm going to be a Protestant or you're going to let me be a Catholic and I'll be a Protestant or whatever. And we're just going to not talk about it that much anymore. Let's just focus on other things because it's not really productive. That was both a huge accomplishment in the beginning of modern society and the beginning of the modern nation state, the Treaty of Westphalia, but also something actually sad. Something was lost in that moment too. What was lost in that moment is that it became too dangerous to talk about what we really believe. Because when we talk about what we really believe, there's always the risk that we get into a debate and a disagreement. And then that disagreement turns just from a verbal disagreement into us going to blows and fighting each other. And then we can't collaborate and then society falls apart and half of everybody dies. That's very interesting. And so I think the implication there is that inspiration is very dangerous. For example, if I tried to get everyone in my company to believe everything I believe about everything, one of two things would happen. I would fail, in which case either the company would fail or I would get kicked out of the company or I would need to change my behavior because it would be rejected. And obviously... All of those outcomes would be very bad outcomes. A lot of trust would be destroyed. And as a result, the company's performance would be hurt. Or the other outcome, which I think is actually just as frightening, is if everyone ends up agreeing with me on everything, that would be terrifying because then we would be in a cult. And the interesting thing about cults historically is that not all of them we associate with entirely negative. For example, Sparta. We love the movie 300. 300 men take on a million Persians. The Greeks take on the Persians. The glorious heroes. But the thing about the cult of Sparta is that the whole thing involved sacrificing your individuality, sacrificing the individual to the collective entirely. You were told what to do, what to be, and everything. There was no debate allowed. This wasn't Athens. This was Sparta. No debate allowed. The only thing that matters, the only thing everyone is living for is the glory of Sparta and the glory of the warrior, and heroism, and duty, and honor. You just got indoctrinated from the moment you were born, and there was a way. It was a way of life, an ethos, a way. And the audience, if the cynical New Yorkers haven't been deeply moved by some art portraying the Battle of Thermopylae, I don't know, go watch the movie 300 or something. Go read about it. The Battle of Thermopylae is enough to make grown adults cry. There's something truly deeply moving and glorious about it even in our woke world there's something even more this is a bunch of gay lovers that basically trained together all day every day lived together loved each other and loved each other so much and loved what they stood for loved their cult so much the cult of sparta so much they were all willing to die for each other and die for an idea so there's something beautiful about it not all cults are bad some cults are bad Hitler's cult of Nazism was clearly horrific. First of all, I have no desire to join a cult. I don't want to lose my individuality. I don't know about you. I would much rather have lived in Athens than Sparta. I would rather be a citizen in Athens than the king of Sparta. Far rather. But I sort of have to ask this question of, can you have your cake and eat it too? What exactly is the difference between a cult and a culture? Could you have Sparta-like performance, but have Athens-like separation of church and state? Athens like individuality and not lose the individual within the collective. And I don't know. What do you think, Haley? Is it possible?
1: I'm thinking back to trust and our conversation about trust and my suggestion that trust comes from a shared story. And then that's when we go to Westphalia and say, okay, but this breaks stories into little bits. What I was listening for or thinking about or the lens I was listening through is different slices of a story. I'll give you an example. I was thinking about America as an example. And I am a Christian and I am not someone who believes America is a Christian nation, but I don't in any way feel put upon by the secularized structure of America because I don't actually think America should be a Christian. I actually think it's very weird for a nation to try and hold a religious identity because it doesn't what religion is. Unless the U.S. can have a conversion of the heart, which doesn't make sense for meta life, then it can't really participate in that thing. Or it can't love a big part of religion is loving. And that's not something a state really can do. So I was thinking, why do I not feel fragmented somehow in my existence by the fact that I can't really bring one story to the other? And I was like, oh, well, just these are just different stories for me that play out over different timelines. One is a story about what I think is true over a universal time period for a lot of different people. One's a story about where I think I fit in that. The story about America for me and where I fit in that is I really believe in a pluralistic project where we get together and try and build government that's responsive to people. That's what I was thinking about. I was thinking about overlapping storylines and even thinking about the easiest unit at which to consider this question is maybe a good one to put to you. The simplest unit of this, I think, is the individual and the family. Very often being part of a family requires subsuming your individual identity into the family because we're talking about trust, in order to have trust, you actually have to sacrifice individuality. Sometimes what belonging means is having individuality. And then if you are not in some way distinct, you actually don't belong to the whole at all. So what I was thinking about is, do we even have experience of times when we have one story about who we are as an individual, and then another story about who we are in the life of a family, in a way that achieves some balance between those two or doesn't privilege our group identity over our individual identity, or doesn't make it so that a group can't trust an individual, and vice versa.
0: In other words, the idea of having multiple identities and being comfortable with multiple identities.
1: And a narrative-based identity. I'm going to tease this out for a second because I'm making sense of my thoughts as we talk. The question I'm asking is whether stories give us a sense of identity that allows trust to be formed across scales or across stories. So where across scales here might mean between individual and family. I have a story about myself as an individual, I have a story about myself as a member of a family. How do I keep trust in both places if they're different?
0: And it's interesting, when you start to play with this, you start to move into this masked ball. You start to move into this idea of we have many masks. There's the version of us that shows up on Monday morning at work. There's a version of us that shows up Friday night for the dance party. There's the version of us that shows up on Sunday brunch. These are very different versions of us. There's a version of us that we are alone at home late at night reading. There's all these different versions of us and of each other that moves into a very interesting territory. I know that we're coming up here in the last 10 minutes or so of our time together, and I would like to attempt a wrap-up, if you'll let me. Proceed. We've been playing with these two words, trust and corporation. And corporation obviously is an interchangeable word for us with company, but company is a slightly different word and has different etymology. And we think about company, we think about companions, companions, and that can mean not just people we work with in a business, but even if you think about a company of actors or companions on a journey that we go hiking together or traveling together, or a life companion, like a significant other, a romantic partner. And the idea of accompanying each other on a journey where we're going from point A to point B. And there's this idea there of fellowship. And I'm thinking about these D words, these D words like dogma versus debate versus dialogue. And I think that's a nice spectrum of continuity there. If dogma is associated with cults, there's just one right answer. And this is the right answer. And don't question it, just be it. And then debate is, I disagree and I have a right to disagree. And you and I disagree. And maybe we disagree so much, we're going to fight each other. Then there's this thing all the way over of dialogue and the idea that there are gains to trade from dialogue. And this is a beautiful idea, I think, which is that you and I disagree. I embrace you and I embrace our differences. I'm not in any way trying to force you to agree with me. As a matter of fact, if you agreed with me, I wouldn't be able to benefit from this practice This thing that we do every time we hang out and get coffee and shake hands or even hug each other, even deeper embrace, this thing that we do, this conversation is a practice in gaining from each other. I learn from you. You learn from me. I have ideas when you talk. You have ideas when I talk. And there's something actually, again, going back to Sweden, the thing that I noticed walking around the streets of Stockholm is that what do humans do all the time when they're not at war? They meet in coffee shops, they meet in cafes, they meet for lunch, they meet for dinner, they meet for drinks, they do Zoom calls, they're on the phone, talking, 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 talking. When you don't actually know the words because you don't speak the language, I don't speak Swedish, all you hear is sounds, meaningless sounds. But the thing about Swedish is it's one of the singing languages, like Italian, like Chinese. And so you're walking around the streets of Stockholm hearing birdsong, except it's not birdsong. It's humans singing, singing the great song of conversation, singing to each other. It's very aesthetic, it's very moving. And the idea is that everyone's profiting from this, and birds sing and humans talk. It's just something we do, humans talk. But we all know there's an art to conversation. Not all conversations are created equal, some conversations are higher than others. And so, if there is a theme to this whole podcast and a theme to the company, because again, one of the sacred rituals of invisible is our Friday conversations meeting. One of our company policies is minimum viable alignment. So there are some things we do need to agree on to function as a company. There are some contracts we have. We need to grow our profits. If our profits don't grow, the company is weaker versus stronger. Even people who are on very different sides of a lot of issues, who vote for different things or belong to different religions, everyone can agree on that. And we have an extremely diverse company. We have people in 60 countries around the world. We have atheists, agnostics, Hindus, Muslims, Jews, Christians, Buddhists, Taoists, and I'm sure all kinds of other things from every tradition you can imagine. I'm sure we have people of every possible political persuasion. So when you have a company this hyper diverse with so many different understandings and perspectives, how do you actually create e pluribus unum? How do you create out of many one? Again, you don't want to eliminate the many. You don't want to eliminate all that beautiful diversity. Diversity is one of the sacred words of liberalism. But you also need unity. You need unum. You need one. You need to be one company, one metahuman. This is a theme that all of the classic historians from Herodotus and Thucydides and Aristotle, Aristotle had a theory of government that very naturally monarchy would lead, to tyranny, which would lead to democracy, which would lead to aristocracy, which would lead back to monarchy again, and sort of just like cyclical history. This was expanded upon by so many, Gibbon, Ibn Haldun, Tacitus, Cicero, Plutarch, Livy, all of them. And this thing of, hmm, maybe there is a practice, the Greek word for it is ascesis. Maybe just simply by doing this thing of having conversations and setting certain ground rules to conversations, we can get to have our cake and eat it too. And the have our cake and eat it too here is, you can get the unity of a Sparta with the diversity of an Athens. You can get the benefits of a cult with the plurality of a culture. You can have the sense of spirituality of a church without the sense of tyranny of an organized dogmatic religion, you're embracing all spiritualities, including the anti-spirituality, spirituality, <laughs> scientism, you start to learn these distinctions. And the point is that there's no arrival. The underlying epistemology of this approach is there is no final endpoint. There is no place where we're trying to arrive and like, that's it, it's done. We are in evolution. We are moving into the future together and we don't know what's next. And we allow that to sort of mysteriously unfold and to be part of the unfolding together. I think that there's something there that I feel like I could talk about with many, many people for many, many hours. I
1: was thinking the same. Minimum viable alignment came up for me several times. Sometimes it's really interesting to start with the very local known phenomenon and then to use that to explore these larger concentric circles that move outward. For me, it's interesting to think about how might minimum viable alignment delineate between a church, a civilization, a culture, all of those scales. For me, something I think is really interesting about minimum viable alignment in particular is almost the idea, earlier we talked about trust, having this dimension of what you can expect, when you can expect it, and where, this idea of place. And I think something I experience in our company story is a great amount of coherence on the major plot points, If someone were storyboarding, what's the deal with invisible? I feel like we would all come up with a pretty similar plot line on things that mattered most from profitability to the experience we wanna create for our clients, to the experience we wanna create for our agents, to the experience we wanna have ourselves, and even to how we wanna operate and what matters when as well, because there are even different points in the year where revenue and profitability might have different relationships to each other. I think at the subplot level, we're very, very unconcerned with in one area, how will they make their part of the story true? Very content to just let product make the part of the story true that they can make true in whatever way they discover along the way. There's an interesting, I don't know quite how to express it in a more detailed way than that, but I'll think about it. I feel like subplots as suburbs that aren't centrally managed and then major through lines and threads that we all agree on does really allow for debate mid-journey on how we're going to get there, and even on where we are. Because something I experience here that I don't experience other places, or I haven't experienced as much other places, is I'm actually allowed to disagree about the meaning of events with my colleagues. So let's say I'm reading about different competitors, and I think one of them is significant and someone else doesn't. Our story is not so rigid that there's not room for us to go, wait, where are we? At the same time, I do get this gut feeling of, I'm at Invisible, I am a partner. I am in service of agency for myself, others, our agents, and our clients, and companies in general. I'm here for company sovereignty to be able to make its own decisions.
0: Well, that's a free market of ideas point of view because nobody's imposing it. But if you start to seed certain ideas, you have a minimum viable imposition, minimum viable alignment. And you try to get real alignment as much as possible, but there is a hierarchy. But then by leaving everything else free and open, You do actually get over time a natural convergence. So you have divergence, 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 and convergence and convergence. and You have this thing involved. And I think Haley's getting at this idea of subplots, subcultures. So between Haley, Olivia, and I, there is a subculture of us three, the unique dynamic that exists between Francis, Haley, and Olivia. If we added a fourth partner here, Andrew, there would be a different dynamic. The dynamic that exists between Francis Haley, Olivia, and Andrew. So all of this is basically Metcalfe's law, which governs the defensibility of Facebook and the increasing utility of a telephone network. And also the coordination costs of growing a company also governs the culture of a company. There are all of these fascinating combinatorial matrices that exist within a culture of all of the social graph of the company is all these unique combinations and constellations and how All these birds are chirping inside of the company every day. And you have to surrender control and also surrender the illusion that you were ever in control. If you're operating under the idea that you're in a top-down company and you're the CEO and you're in charge and you get to say what goes, this is so ridiculous. And actually, there's amazing work not just done by economists but done by business theorists. The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen has the very heretical view that there are certain things that even if a CEO puts all of their power and all of their energy to try to force a company to do, and even if they are actually right on some level strategically, they will not be able to override the bottoms up pull and influence of market forces from clients and from capital markets. That is a heretical idea in The Innovator's Dilemma by Clayton Christensen. But guess what? It's also the idea in Plato's Gorgias and the Gorgias dialogue with Socrates, which I read when I was 12 and I'm still obsessed with today, because he was in the same conversation that we're in right now. We are in the same conversation that they were having. And they were in Athens having the same conversation about trade-offs, these trade-offs between being eccentric and allowing yourself to be weird and being normal and normifying people, imposing some sort of common collective view, individuals versus the collective, et cetera. And for them, for Socrates, it was all about logic versus rhetoric. And the thing that he was afraid of was that somebody who was really good at wielding words, somebody who was really charismatic, would just persuade people with beautiful speeches and get them to do something foolish, like his own boyfriend did. Because Socrates' boyfriend was Alcibiades, and Alcibiades wrecked the entire Athenian navy and destroyed the entire Athenian empire. Why? Because he was so handsome, so good looking, so charismatic and gave the best speeches ever. And he was a demagogue and he got everyone to vote for the dumbest idea because he was a master of rhetoric. He was a sophist and he wasn't that good at logic. And so there's this thing of the love of poetry and the love of philosophy are counterbalancing each other. If you really love inquiry, the practice of dialogue, the openness to being wrong, the openness to disagreement and the revelation that occurs through conversations with people that are different from you, then you never get into this place where you're so blinded, you blind yourself and blind others into this locked-in one truth, and you allow for this bottom-up thing to counterbalance the top-down thing. That is a sign of health. Actually, not being so sure. In in the temple of Apollo at Delphi, they had engraved, "Surely." brings ruin. Don't be so freaking certain about everything. Don't think that you've got the right answers. And now I should shut up because that would be the thing to do.
1: I have two comments. One, I want you to know when I interview people, I'm, if you can't tell, a really passionate partner at Invisible, meaning I feel very happy to be here. And when I interview people, I tell them reasons to join. So I think this is one of the best platforms for entrepreneurs, period full stop because it's conceived to operate as such. But I also think there's some reasons not to join, depending on who you are. So I kind of go through a period where I'm like, if you feel this way, you should never join Invisible. And one of the things I talk about is decision making that is top down and bottom up at the same time. And basically the ability to be Athens and Sparta at the same time in a way. The way I put it is when you're onboarded, you'll be told you're the CEO of your area. And that's true. Until Francis gives you a directive. And then it's no longer true. And I was like, I don't experience that as a conflict. I actually experience that as the best of several worlds because I want to live in an organization that's really nimble and can move at the speed of a command but also one that can allow insight and innovation to rise up from the top and create conflict at the right time with whatever the prevailing narrative is. And so I find that actually across the board I think people who do well here can really understand when which of those cultural modes is at play? When is this a moment when we're just as a team gonna jump in line and, and Sparta the shit? And when are we gonna sit down and go, Are you sure? Can we check your eyeballs on reality? And I say that because I also think for me, that's a great source of trust, the ability to be both of those things. And it makes me think about we've talked so much about conflict across identities in different dimensions today. And I think when one side isn't overpowered versus the other, I'm drawing a parallel between the individual and the family or between the church and the state and between the rhetoricians and the logicians in terms of teeing up a system where different identities, different stories and different measure have the amount of power appropriate to win the day where you kind of don't know how the game is going to go. And that for me is something that creates trust in a larger system is like the appropriate conflict that leads to truth.
0: Very good. Let's all summarize and conclude. Haley, how would you summarize?
1: I think I have to zoom out a second. What kinds of tensions make a culture more trustworthy? What kinds of deliberate conflict built into a city, a country, a civilization, a corporation, a company, a friendship, what kind of deliberate tension makes it more trustworthy?
0: I believe on the last podcast, I talked about Mr. H, who I encountered when I was 12 and changed my life by introducing me to what he called the great conversation and the great conversation has been occurring across thousands of years across every ancient civilization all the way to the present day and still in the 21st century we are in the inquiry in the tapestry of history pulling through the same threads You can read the founding fathers of the United States and you see that they're pulling on threads from Locke and from Hobbes and from Rousseau, and that they were pulling on threads from Descartes and Aquinas, and that they were pulling on threads from the ancient Greeks and going all the way back to this book, the Gorgias and Socrates and all the Socratic dialogues and Plato's Republic. And you can read Tolkien and the Lord of the Rings and you realize, oh, where did he get the idea for the ring? Oh, it was the Republic, the myth of Gyges Ring. Whoa. And you just have this sense of, wait a second. When Haley and I and Olivia are having these conversations, this is at the end of this three-part series on trust as the foundation of wealth and following through on great conversations as the foundation of all trust. We're not having a conversation that's been had for the first time. This is a conversation that has been had many times by many people. And we are just picking up the torch and we're passing the torch on to you, the cynical New Yorkers in our audience. And, I'm just going to close with two threads of inquiry that I would like to follow through on in the next conversation I have with whomever I have these conversations with. The two threads I want to pull on next time are, first of all, the polygon koan. Here it is, here it goes. What is the name of a shape in which all points are center? That's something I want to pull through. And the second thing I want to pull through is the tension between the power and the dangers of inspiration and the power and the dangers of ego and how to balance these forces of ego and inspiration as an individual operating within a team and operating within a corporation. Thank you so much, audience. Thank you so much, Olivia. Thank you so much, Haley. This was an amazing session. And so there was totally impromptu and improvised and amazing jazz. And I love making music with you. And thank you so much for all that was revealed.
1: Thanks, Francis. Thanks, Olivia.
0: Yay. Hey, thanks for tuning into Plain Sight presented by Invisible. If you liked what you heard, be sure to hit the subscribe button and consider sharing with your network. If you're interested in learning more about how Invisible helps teams cut costs and scale, visit our website at Invisible. See you
1: next time.